0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to to today's recording of Brussels Sprouts Live. I'm Andrea
1: Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend.
0: And we're so glad you can join us. Today, as Richard said, we have a very special edition of Brussels Sprouts. Not only are we here as part of CNAS's annual conference, but even more importantly, sorry, Richard, uh, we are celebrating the podcast's five-year anniversary. And Jim and I thought there was no better way to celebrate Brussels sprouts as the anniversary than by bringing back the co-founder, the co-creator of Brussels sprouts, uh, Ambassador Julie Smith, who, as our listeners know, has gone on to much bigger things in her current role as the U.S. Ambassador to NATO. So Julie, Ambassador Smith, um, welcome back to Brussels sprouts. Uh, so then Jim and I were thinking, if we're bringing in Ambassador Smith back to the podcast, How are we going to really outdo ourselves and take things over the top to make this a special celebration to really remember? And the answer to that question was crystal clear. Uh, We knew we had to bring back to Brussels sprouts NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg, I think someone who encapsulates the spirit and strength of the transatlantic alliance. Uh, So without further ado, I am really excited to welcome back to Brussels sprouts uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Um, it's such an honor to have you join us today. And I think just looking at this screen, I'm overwhelmed, and I have to say I can't think of a better way to mark the anniversary of the podcast. Um, and I want to point out, Secretary General, that you were uh, on the podcast back in 2017. So I think in a sense, we have really brought things full circle for the five-year anniversary. So this is really fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I want to jump right in. One quick note before I do, I want to let all of the listeners know that you can also submit questions for the Secretary General and Ambassador Smith. So, if you have a question and you want to hear it included as part of our podcast recording, please use the chat box uh, at cnas.org uh, forward slash live, or tweet at us using the hashtag cnas2023. Okay, Secretary General, I'd love to start with you and I want to start our discussion where I think our listeners are entirely focused and that is on Ukraine's offensive. Many indicators suggest, indicate that it has started and we know that there's really a lot at stake. Um, in many ways, it will be Ukraine's ability to retake territory and to demonstrate that it can use Western equipment to good effect that will shape future levels of support for Kyiv. But I also think we understand um, and that there's a good chance that the offensive will not be decisive, meaning that we can't necessarily expect that it will push Putin to the negotiating table and bring an end to the war. And so my question is, can you tell us about the West's long term plan to support Ukraine and how you see NATO's role in that?
2: But let me, I will say some words about it in a moment. Let me first thank you for having me on this podcast. And it's great to be back. And a great honor to be here together with Ambassador Julie Smith because uh, I was actually not aware that she was a co-founder of this podcast. So that makes it even greater pleasure to to be here to celebrate the the fifth anniversary. And, And I think it is important that we have podcasts like uh, this one to, 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 to ensure that there is focus, uh, a platform to discuss and to address the importance of uh, the transatlantic bone and how we uh, ensure that that uh, prevails and is actually strengthened in the more dangerous world. And, uh, and uh, Ambassador Smith, she, she really demonstrates her leadership and her commitment to this uh, alliance every day here at NATO. So we are glad that she's uh, not working with you, but actually working with us here at, uh, here at, uh, at NATO. Um, then on the offensive well what we have seen is that there, there, there is now more fighting going on uh, along the the front lines um uh, I'm always very careful uh, not going into the operational details because I think that's really for the Ukrainians uh, to to tell and you also seen this video they have put out on the social media where actually calling on everyone to be uh, to not say so much about the the the, the counter offensive the the operational details Uh, um, uh, And then, of course, wars are unpredictable, so no one can tell exactly how this will evolve. What we do know is that uh, the Ukrainians have now uh, capabilities, uh, weapons, ammunition, and also training provided by uh, NATO allies and partners, and not least through the uh, US-led contact group for Ukraine, uh, that has put them in a place so they they have the capabilities uh, needed to liberate more land. And what we also know is that uh, the Ukrainians have proven that they are able to push back the the Russian forces as they did uh, in the north around uh, Kiev uh, just after a few weeks in the east uh, uh, around Kharkiv and then in the south around uh, Kherson. And now they have more equipment, more training uh, um, and more preparations for uh, liberating even more land. No one can tell exactly how this war ends. uh, But what we do know is that Uh, What happens around uh, a negotiating table that uh, at some stage hopefully will uh, bring an end to this war, uh, it's totally dependent on what goes on on the battlefield. So we need to strengthen Ukraine's position on the battlefield to enable them to get an outcome of this war which uh, uh, ensures that uh, Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation and that President Putin do not win this war.
1: Uh, thank you so much for that. And I, I realize that uh, you've probably been asked that question uh, multiple times. That's a, I, So it's a well-honed answer. It's very excellent. But I have a question for both of you. Uh, for Julie, it's from the U.S. perspective, and then Mr. Secretary General from the Alliance perspective. But you probably know here on the streets in Washington, uh, the, as we think about Vilnius, the big question is, what will NATO do in terms of security guarantees for Ukraine? We know that Zelensky has particularly been uh, going around talking about NATO membership. Uh, having been in NATO myself, I know that's not exactly how it works. Uh, it's, it's, this is for uh, Ukraine. This is something, and for NATO, it's very sensitive uh, on next steps. But, but everyone seems to agree that we need to do something in terms of security guarantees between now uh, and the time when uh, they can be brought into the alliance, if that's the alliance decision, that when they can be brought in. Uh, there's got to be some type of security guarantees backed up by the West. So at Vilnius, how are you all going to handle that, uh, Mr. Secretary General? What's what's the approach going to be in talking about security guarantees? And Julie, Ambassador Smith, in terms of the United States, where's the U.S. on security guarantees?
2: First, uh, for NATO security guarantees, are uh, Article 5 is full membership. Uh, then I know that there are also Uh, uh, discussions um, and consultations uh, between Ukraine and some allies on bilateral uh, arrangements, but I will not go into those. What I can say, uh, 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 what I can can address is is the the ongoing process in uh, in NATO. And yes, there are consultations on these issues, on how to address Ukraine's membership uh, aspirations. Uh, and we had a very good uh, foreign ministerial meeting in uh, Oslo uh, just a few days ago, where this was uh, one of the main uh, topics. And um, of course, we—it's uh, too early to preempt the, the outcome of the Vilnius summit on this issue. But what I can say is that allies actually agree on many important things related to uh, to uh, to, uh, to Ukraine and the path towards uh, NATO uh, uh, membership, because. Uh, all allies agree that NATO's door is open and we have demonstrated that over the last years with North Macedonia, Montenegro and now by inviting Finland uh, and, and Sweden and Finland has already become a full-fledged member of the alliance. So NATO's door remains open. Uh, that's the, and all allies agree. Second, all allies agree that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. That has been stated again and again. Last time all leaders stated that at the uh, Madrid Summit uh, uh, in, uh, in June last year. Um, uh, And then uh, uh, all allies also agree that it is for Ukraine and for the allies to decide when the time is right to uh, invite uh, Ukraine to become uh, a member. It's not for Moscow, it's not for uh, Putin. Putin doesn't have a veto over NATO uh, enlargement. And then we agree on one more thing, and that is uh, also of vitally importance, and that is that the most urgent task now is to ensure that President Putin does not win this war and and that Ukraine prevails. Because unless Ukraine uh, is able to continue to exist as a sovereign, independent, democratic state in Europe, there is no issue to discuss about membership at all. Uh, So we should not do anything now that undermines the unity uh, in providing support to Ukraine. And again, I would like to commend the United States for really showing leadership uh, in, in mobilizing support, both from the United States but also from European allies and from partners across uh, uh, the world. Um, uh, The reason why we need to address the the issue of security arrangements, uh, assurances, uh, uh, and also, at some stage, membership, is that when this war ends, uh, we uh, we have to have uh, 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 arrangements in place that ensure that this is just not a kind of a pause, where uh, President Putin is able to uh, rest and reconstitute and uh, relocate its forces for yet another attack. Uh, As we have seen uh, for many years, the war didn't start last year, it started in in, in 2014. Uh, And therefore, when this war ends, we need to have the framework in place uh, to ensure that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, that uh, President Putin will not continue to chip away at European security by attacking Ukraine. And in that broader framework, of course, all kinds of arrangements, uh, 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 frameworks that ensures uh, and helps to prevent further attacks on on Ukraine is uh, of great importance.
0: Yeah, Julie. Maybe just to reframe the question over to you, as Jim said, to hear the U.S. perspective. I think one concern is if we all agree that Ukraine should eventually be in NATO. We're talking about after the war, and so the concern is: well, if Putin understands that that's not happening until quote unquote, after the war, then he has every incentive to continue the war as long as possible. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about whether there is thinking and what the thinking is about whether or not there are interim steps that Washington might consider taking in terms of these security assurances or other things that could be put in place even while fighting is ongoing.
3: Uh, well, first of all, let me just say uh, congratulations to the Brussels Sprouts team, Andrea and Jim. Uh, it's been an incredible run. I can't believe uh, five years uh, have gone by. Um, and I've really genuinely enjoyed listening from here in Brussels to Brussels Sprouts. So uh, congrats on all of that. And thanks for the invitation today. It's such a treat to do this uh, in tandem with the Secretary General. Um, on the question of Ukraine and its future relationships, with the alliance, Um, the question of security assurances slash guarantees. I mean, all I can do is, uh, in essence, echo what the Secretary General just said. We are, as you might imagine, uh, you both have worked uh, many years in government. This is the time when we are sitting around the table working on a package uh, for the summit. You've heard that President Zelensky intends to come in person. And we are working on several things simultaneously. We're looking at how to enhance our practical support, not just in terms of what allies provide right now so that the Ukrainians can continue to retake territory, But we're really trying to send a signal to Russia and our friends in Ukraine that irrespective of when this war comes to an end, NATO allies will continue to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine to help with its long-term modernization, with interoperability, with questions of standardization, and a whole array of things that will signal to Ukraine that it is both about support to you now, and it's about support to you in the future. Uh, And I think that message is going to come across loud and clear in Vilnius. The other part of the package is on the political front. You've heard and read in the press that we're looking at an array of options to also signal that the Ukrainians are advancing in their relationship with the NATO alliance, and the alliance is interested in strengthening their political relationship with the allies represented around the NAC table. And so we're looking at some possibilities there. The bigger question about how we can Capture membership in the communique will be something we will debate in the weeks ahead. We're about five weeks out. And as you well know, there are a variety of views across the alliance. We have the Ukrainians themselves asking for a proper invitation. We have some allies that are looking at Bucharest from 2008 and feel comfortable with that. And in between is a lot of gray space. And I think over the next five weeks, we are going to find the place where we can address Ukraine's concerns. We can signal to the Ukrainian people that NATO is interested in this relationship for the long haul and that Russia will not succeed in getting all of us to look away. Obviously, Putin thought we would eventually get distracted and lose interest in Ukraine, but we can say sitting here in the halls of NATO, that's not happening. And unity remains firm. Uh, of course, we have our challenges at times um, with all of the assistance that's being provided. That obviously gets harder um, each and every week that takes by. But the commitment to keep supporting Ukraine so that they can ultimately prevail is rock solid and we'll be able to send that message loud and clear in Vilnius.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Um, Thanks to both. Secretary General, I want to ask you a little bit of a spicy question. Um, Some um, critics out there have said or some voices out there have said that NATO was brain dead and that it was Vladimir Putin that revitalized the Drifting Alliance Um, The argument would be that it wasn't really until the re-invasion that the alliance became truly attuned to the threats that Russia poses. Um, I have my own views, but I want to put it to you to hear, was it NATO or was it NATO members, some NATO members that were brain dead ahead of the invasion?
2: NATO was very much aware of this uh, in, in invasion that uh, that Russia was planning and building up for an invasion of uh, of the, the of of Ukraine uh, because uh, the United States, all the NATO allies, and also NATO uh, uh, took part in in, in the efforts of sharing information to to share with the broader public that actually now uh, President Putin Russia was planning for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and uh, and this was made public in the fall of 2021. But more important than actually sharing that information, which was, I think, very important, um, uh, 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 NATO has seen a pattern for many years. Uh, and we have responded to that because again, it didn't start in uh, in February 2022. Uh, it, it started in Ukraine in, 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 in the spring of 2014. Uh, and since 2014, uh, with the first illegal annexation of Crimea and then a few weeks later the, uh, the, the Russia uh, taking control over eastern Donbass, NATO has implemented over all these uh, yeah, nine years now, the biggest adaptation of the alliance in NATO's modern history, Uh, with more combat-ready troops. For the first time in our history, uh, combat or battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance, something we agreed in 2016. After some discussions, but we we actually made that, that decision, uh, and then uh, before 2014, all allies were d- reducing defense spending. After 2014, all allies across Europe and Canada, and of course the United States, leading uh, uh, defense spending has increased or have increased defense spending significantly. Added 250 billion extra dollars across Europe and uh, and Canada. Um, uh, and then you have established new uh, defense domains like cyber and so on. So, 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 so. NATO is the most successful in history, uh, alliance in history for two reasons. First, our unity, but the second reason is that we have been able to change when the world is changing. For 40 years, we deterred uh, Russia, uh, or the Soviet Union, uh, uh, and the Warsaw Pact. Then the, the, the Cold War ended, and, 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 and we helped to end the ethnic wars in the Balkans, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Serbia, Kosovo. Then, after 9-11, we were on the front line in, in the fight against terrorism. And then, over the last years, especially since 2014, uh, we have turned away from what should I say big out of area operations to really build up collective defence uh, 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 here uh, in uh, in Europe. So when the invasion happened last year, the full scale invasion happened last year. NATO was was prepared partly because we had shared intelligence, uh, but also partly uh, uh, because uh, we had uh, already uh, implemented this biggest uh, biggest adaptation of the alliance uh, 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 in uh, in decades. So so. So, so NATO continues to adapt. That's the reason why we uh, are successful. And that adaptation didn't start last year. It started actually in 2014 after the illegal annexation of Crimea.
1: Well, thank you very much. Okay. The uh, history you recited is so familiar. And it's a great story of particularly moving from the Wales Summit to what we'll see in Vilnius, I'm sure. And then the Washington Summit coming up, too. It's going to be a trajectory that I think none of us saw, you know, 2013. Years ago, two and a half years ago, and yet there we are. But I tell you, what you've laid out is a is a is a story of NATO adaptation that has really uh, been strong. And I just hope that that will continue after Vilnius uh, into the future. That uh, we can keep that momentum going. But let me take us to another part of your your AOR, your area of responsibility. That's cropped up, uh, and that's the Balkans. Uh, and uh, that's really actually a reminder to our listeners that. It's not all about Russia Ukraine. We've got problems uh, in Europe and the South as well. Uh, We have violence uh, break out in even a worse worse way. A couple of uh, days ago, NATO peacekeepers were hurt. Uh, It looks like uh, Kosovo and uh, the Serbian governments are spoiling for a fight. And NATO's in the middle of that, too. And I'm sure that you and Ambassador Smith got phone calls in the middle of the night uh, saying we've got to do something. So let me ask both of you, both from the United States perspective, Ambassador Smith, what, uh, what Washington is trying to do about the situation, but particularly at NATO, uh, dealing with K-4, how are things looking in terms of the way ahead for dealing with the Balkans?
3: Well, uh, first of all, thanks for the reminder, because of course you're right. Um, We often talk about a 360-degree approach around here inside the NATO alliance, which means we have to be prepared to deal with any potential threats, challenges, crises that come at us from all angles, not just in regards to what's going on in Ukraine, which is our top priority, but in places like the Balkans. And you're right. In recent days, we've seen uh, some violence. We had uh, a couple of dozen of KFOR soldiers serving there as part of the NATO presence, injured, uh, some seriously injured. Um, Immediately, we set to work inside here at the NATO alliance and working individually, uh, messaging our friends both in Kosovo and Serbia that we wanted the violence to end, we wanted an immediate uh, de-escalation, and that the only path forward is the EU-led dialogue, the EU-facilitated dialogue. And here, it's, it's quite interesting because because you have this NATO presence on the ground in the Balkans, and yet it is the EU that is laying out the path forward towards no- normalization, which we believe is the only path that you can take. So this is an interesting dynamic where both the EU and NATO are heavily engaged and involved. We've had several folks travel down into the region just over the last couple of days, both from Europe and the United States. We're working hand in glove, but it's a good reminder that we're on our- our toes, that NATO has a presence in other parts of the continent. It also has a mission in Iraq, by the way, that sometimes uh, folks, I think, forget or don't uh, don't adequately appreciate. So we are focused on this. We obviously don't want to see any sort of conflict uh, emerge here, any more violence. And we are focused on it like a laser. And um, it is a reminder that NATO is on the ground and playing an active role there in providing security in the Western Balkans.
2: Let me just briefly say that first of all, I agree with everything Ambassador Smith just said about the Balkans and NATO's role. But two more things. One is that I think uh, what happens in Kosovo in particular, but also in the Western Balkans in in general, uh, demonstrates the value and importance of NATO-EU working together, and we really do that. Uh, For instance, in Kosovo we have the NATO troops, we have the KFOR troops uh, supporting and facilitating the diplomatic efforts of the European Union, and that's really an example of how we can work together in addressing a common uh, challenge in our common uh, uh, neighbourhood. Then, uh, of course, the attacks on the uh, KFOR forces is absolutely unacceptable, Uh, and we have also uh, uh, reinforced our presence with uh, several hundred, uh, 700 extra uh, forces from our operational reserve, uh, mainly Turkish forces, to to further strengthen our presence in a a more tense and difficult uh, situation in uh, uh, in uh, in Kosovo. There are challenges, there are problems uh, and, uh, and, and we have seen some setbacks but let me also remind you of that fact that the Western Balkans in, in, in total uh, is actually also uh, uh, many there are also many success stories. I mean not so long to, uh, in, in the 1990s we had brutal ethnic wars with thousands of killed. Uh, then NATO played a key role in ending both uh, those roles uh, th- both those wars. And, and then, since then, um, we have had presence in, 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 in Kosovo, uh, military presence. We have headquarters in Sarajevo. Uh, we have uh, deep political engagement in the region. And uh, several of the former Yugoslav uh, republics, which are now independent nations, are members of NATO. Of course, Bos- uh, Slovenia and, uh, and Croatia. Uh, for many years, but most more recently uh, montenegro and north uh, uh, north macedonia so so yes, there are problems, and yes there are all unsolved issues but 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 I, i've been i spent a lot of time in Montenegro and North Macedonia because they became members during my tenure as secretary general and 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 the, and, the, and, and, and what this has made for those countries the, the way it has helped to to, to to move them towards integration in the euro atlantic family and also helped to facilitate investments, prosperity, a more stable framework for also economic growth uh, has been enormous. So so we should also appreciate all the progress that has been made while we, of course, continue to address the unsolved uh, tensions and issues.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, yeah, Jim, great because question. it does remind that there's multiple challenge, challenges that NATO has to deal with simultaneously. And maybe we can touch on some of those in a second. The China question, resilience, critical infrastructure, all of those things. But Those challenges are balanced against like the the acute challenge that Russia poses. And I want to ask then, Secretary General, about how NATO is thinking about right sizing the Russia challenge. You know, Secretary Blinken was um, out just recently saying that Russia has the second strongest military in just Ukraine. And so I wonder, do you hear anything from allies about, well, if the Russian military can't even be successful and defeat Ukraine, then why is it that you're asking us to increase defense spending? Um, I just want to ask, you know, when, when you're thinking about right-sizing the challenge, we don't want to overestimate it because it takes away resources and attention from the other critical challenges that NATO has to address. So how do you think about the appropriate level of military resources to devote against um to devote to defending against russia moving forward
2: we live in a more dangerous world we have uh uh, russia as a neighbor which has been willing to use military force against neighbors not once but several times over the last years, starting actually with georgia in 2008 uh uh, we have terrorism uh, we have uh uh, nuclear proliferation. And then uh, we don't regard China as a threat, but, but China is investing heavily in new modern capabilities, including uh, more and more advanced and long range uh, nuclear uh, missiles. So, uh, so all this instability and all these challenges just makes it necessary for us to invest more uh, in defense. And we have to remember that until the end of the Cold War, uh, the average in Europe was roughly 3% uh, of GDP for defense. And now we are uh, also we are still not at two as an average. So 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 it's not that much we are asking for. We are asking to, to after the end of the Cold War we reduce defense spending. And in one way I understand that. Allies reduce defense spending. I did that myself as a minister of finance in Norway in the 1990s. But when, if you reduce defense spending, intentions are going down. You have to be able to increase the uh, defense spending. Intentions are going up, and two percent is not actually that uh, that much. The reality is that it's a minimum to 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 pay for all the capabilities and the forces uh, we uh, we uh, we uh, uh, need. And uh, and second, I think yes, uh, uh, Russia has suffered or has, has paid a high price for, for, for the brutal invasion of Ukraine. And President Putin uh, made several big strategic mistakes when he invaded uh, uh, Ukraine. One was to totally underestimate the Ukrainians, their bravery, their courage, their ability to fight back. The other big mistake was to underestimate NATO uh, and, uh, and uh, NATO allies and partners in our uh, resolve to support Ukraine, to stand united and to stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. And again, the US has really demonstrated leadership in a way that has inspired all of us to, to, uh, to, uh, to step up. Um, and then I think also President Putin totally to underestimated the political impact on countries like Finland and Sweden. He wanted less NATO, he's getting more NATO on his borders with Finland and Sweden in. But we should not make the mistake to underestimate Russia, because what they, uh, what they lack in, in quality, in, uh, they have bad morale, bad equipment, bad training, bad leadership, bad lo- logistics, but what they lack in quality, they compensate in quantity, and quantity has a quality in itself, as the generals keep on uh, telling uh, us. Uh, and, and, and we see that they're mobilizing more uh, forces, Um, uh, We also know that uh, they have had big losses for the land forces, but they have air and naval forces which have so hardly suffered any uh, losses, a few losses um, uh, with some exemptions. Uh, and then they have cyber, and then, of course, Russia remains a nuclear power. So uh, so, so, we should not make the mistake to underestimate Russia. This will, and even when the fighting stops in Ukraine, this will have long-lasting consequences for uh, the security in Europe, and, and we need to invest more in defense in a more dangerous world.
1: And uh, Vilnius, uh, in just a few, a few weeks, um, my understanding is, uh, from what I've heard on the street, is that uh, NATO plans to roll out uh, or at least talk about this big uh, military operational plan, which is going to require nations to put more forces forward and uh, and do a lot of things uh, that we should be doing in a situation like this militarily, but that will be expensive. Uh, and so at uh, Vilnius, are, will there be changes at all to the... Uh, to the the various commitments that we want nations to make, uh, i.e. 2% should be a a floor, not a ceiling. We want nations to go up to 3.5%. Sanctions, if nations don't, I'm sure that's not going to happen. But, I mean, how are we going to get nations to pay not just for uh, replenishing what they've provided Ukraine and to make up deficits that they already have, but to pay for a new plan uh, that the military authorities have been working on? Uh, any 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 insight into what can happen in Vilnius to try to get us that way will the US pound the table uh, ambassador smith
3: We will, without a doubt, Jim, continue to press allies uh, to meet the defense investment pledge. And there's going to be a couple of different moving parts to the summit in Vilnius. First and foremost, uh, above and beyond the question of Ukraine and NATO's relationship with Ukraine. So on deterrence and defense specifically, we're going to be rolling out new regional plans. This is a big deal because we're going to have plans in place to protect every inch of NATO's territory. These are also going to be multiple multi-domain plans, which is important, that includes other aspects um, like cyber. We're going to have a new C2 structure that will be paired with the regional plans. And lastly, we're going to say something about resourcing, which gets to your point about what comes after the defense investment pledge. The DIP, as it was designed in 2014, as you know better than anybody else, you were present at the creation, had a 10-year cap on it. Next year, it expires. And so in Vilnius this summer, we'll be laying out kind of dip 2.0 of where do we go from here? I think where allies are united at the moment is focusing very much on ensuring that 2% is an enduring commitment. It is a floor, not a ceiling. And there will be language on this, again, We're in the process of negotiating that literally in real time here in NATO headquarters with all of the allies. But when you put all of this together, when you put the regional plans with the force posture changes we made last year, by the way, and adding four uh, multinational battalions, when you add that to the new C2 structure and the DIP 2.0, we're going to be in a whole new world in terms of the requirements that allies will have to meet, clarity on what the responsibilities are for each individual ally. We're going to increase the level of readiness. We're going to have a bigger pool of forces from which to draw. But you're absolutely right, it will require countries to deliver on the 2%. Now, right now, uh, by any count, we have about seven or eight allies. We expect that number to be significantly bigger next year in 2024, with more coming in about 2025, 2026. So there's good news here on the resourcing front, but the United States will continue to push. Um, And with the Secretary General's help and his leadership in ensuring that all allies meet those resourcing requirements so we can deliver on the plans that we're rolling out in Vilnius.
0: Julie, quick follow-up and Secretary General will come to you, but um, can you talk to us a little bit about, I mean, so obviously in the United States, China remains a key priority uh, and a central focus. So you've talked about the how much, like, you know that the 2% is a floor, not a ceiling. Um, But then there's the question of how allies are spending that money. And I get that the regional plans gets at some of that. But can you talk a little bit about um, and whether there are conversations about NATO member states spending on things that the United States might need to draw down in the event that tensions rise in the Indo-Pacific? Is that something that you think allies are attuned to and that is driving conversations about how allies should spend?
3: Well, here's what's driving the conversation on that front. It's largely tied to the strategic concept that was rolled out last year. And there we cite two main threats, as the Secretary General previously noted. It's Russia and terrorism. But what was really important about that strategic concept was that it included mention of the PRC for the first time. And that's important because now all allies agree there is consensus that these challenges merit our attention, and not just because of what China is doing in its own neighborhood, but because of what China is doing in and around the Euro-Atlantic neighborhood. We are talking increasingly here at NATO about malicious cyber attacks, about disinformation, about malign influence, um, about economic coercion, and uh, attempts to, in essence, erode the rules-based order or erode our technological edge. And because of that, the alliance now is in the process of fleshing out a variety of policies and tools to cope with those challenges. How do we build resilience here? How do we protect critical infrastructure? How do we work with the European Union on cyber attacks? So this will be part of our future agenda. I know Jim referenced this earlier. For all the obvious reasons, Ukraine is the top order priority, no question about that. But speaking to NATO's adaptability, the alliance is simultaneously taking on new challenges emerging and disruptive technologies. There's a whole list here, and that does get us to the resourcing question. To acknowledge those challenges in the strategic concept, pair them with the threats of Russia and terrorism, really gets you to the point where you can easily justify why this type of spending is necessary.
0: I would know we could continue down this path for a while. We don't have that many minutes left, and I know we want to end on with a couple of reflective questions and Secretary General, I just wanted to ask you to look back at um, NATO's relations with Russia under your tenure. So I know you came into your role in 2014 and relations had already taken a very significant downward turn. Um, But the US and Europe were never really able to get things back on track. And maybe perhaps it was a little bit of the lackluster response in 2014 that made this current moment um, more likely. But can I just ask you to reflect a little bit on how things got so bad and whether or not you think we had any missed opportunities with Russia? Uh,
2: NATO and the West and NATO allies, we really tried uh, to uh, create and to establish a better relationship with the uh, Russia after the end of the Cold War, uh, we established a NATO-Russia Council. We had a founding act between NATO and uh, and uh, and Russia, and uh, and both as NATO, but also as individual allies, and in the United States, uh, uh, of course, really made a lot of efforts uh, in those decades to really uh, change our relationship with uh, uh, with the Russia. And I was part of that in my previous capacity as a Norwegian politician uh, for ten years, also Prime Minister, and and in Norway in the high north we were actually able to to develop good working relationship a good cooperation with uh, with Russia uh uh, the, as, I, as I met President Putin many times, and we discussed everything from uh, energy project up in the Barents Sea to a delimitation line that we negotiated and agreed in the policy in the Barents Sea, uh, um, um, environment, fisheries. We had a lot of cooperation up in the north. Uh, and I strongly believed in the NATO idea of deterrence defense and dialogue. Um, and uh, but But then Russia has deliberately chose another path, they, 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 didn't, they, didn't, they didn't have the courage to really engage and to try to build down historical uh, uh, differences. That has been possible before. The Nordic countries, the Swedes and the Danes and the, and the Finns and the Norwegians, we used to fight uh, for centuries and now we're the best friends in the world. Uh, and if you look at the rest of Europe, uh, uh, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, they, they also used to, uh, to be different sides of wars. That have ravaged uh, Europe for uh, for, uh, for centuries, and now they're best friends and allies in NATO and the European Union. So of course you could, it was right to hope for something similar to happen in our relationship with Russia. But then gradually we saw that Russia was um, walking away with uh, actions against Georgia, Ukraine, and other countries, where they tried to re-establish spheres of influence where big uh, nations control what the smaller neighbors can do. And then NATO uh, gradually, uh, of course, need to emphasize more not dialogue but the deterrence uh, 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 and defence, and, and in particular since since 2014. So you can always have a kind of academic uh, discussion, and uh, that's important about what could have been different. But the overall picture is that we really tried uh, from uh, from the NATO side to engage with Russia. Uh, Russia uh, didn't have the. I think fundamentally what, what President Putin uh, really is afraid of is not NATO, but he's afraid of free democratic societies, which is undermining his power base in Moscow. And that's also the reason why he don't want to see a successful free independent democratic Ukraine, because that really challenged his idea of uh, uh, how to uh, govern and rule and to, to remain in power in, uh, in, uh, in Russia.
0: Yeah, if it's possible in Ukraine, it, it must be it possible, possible, possible in, in Russia and, also. Yeah, that's the
1: fear. But Jim, over to you for our last question. Last question. When Julie and I used to do this, she used to love the Jim Townsend question at the end. So I think she probably knows what's, what's heading your way. But um, but, you know, and this is really for both of you and uh, Mr. Secretary General, starting with you, you know, this you you have just had a tremendous uh, tenure there at NATO for so many years, so many crises. The book you write will be multi-volume and it'll be a great movie tom cruise will play you and uh and it'll be uh an academy award winner but but let me ask you as you are looking at uh the t- towards the end now of your of your tenure um what advice do you wish you had been given before you took your job as you were going around and talking to former sections and others what if, now that you've had all this time in office? What advice do you wish someone had given you? And Julie, that's questions coming to you too. But uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about it. But Mr. Secretary General, first. Secretary
2: General. So first of all, I, I I received a lot of good advice, and all that advice, I am very good at receiving and listening to advice. Uh, so I've done that my whole life, and I and I spent a lot of time actually traveling around and preparing myself to become uh, Secretary General NATO after I was appointed, I think, in March 2014, and then I, I took up the office in, in, on the 1st of October. So I had quite a long time to prepare, and, and that was good because then I was actually able to listen to advice and I got a lot of good advice from experts and and, uh, and people like, like like think tanks in the United States and, and, uh, and, uh, and others. Um, um, but I think the most important advice uh, is that uh, we need to keep Europe and North America together. As Whatever happens, it's very hard to predict what will, what will be the next crisis, what will be the next uh, challenge we, we face. But whatever that challenge or crisis is, as long as we stand together, Europe and North America, we will manage. Uh, NATO is, of course, important for Europe. That's, uh, for me, obvious. But it's also important for the United States. It's a huge Advantage for the United States to have uh, 30 friends and allies in, uh, in NATO. Uh, no other major power, China, Russia, doesn't have anything like, like that. And that makes also the United States safer and stronger. And in particular, if you are afraid of the size of, uh, of China, their, their, their budgets, their, 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 their economy, uh, and, and also what they do now do when it comes to, it comes to uh, technology, then it's, it's a great thing to have friends and allies And as long as we stay together, Europe and North America, we will manage everything.
1: Well, that's a wonderful answer. And I I would have thought it would have been, don't eat the cheval uh, plate that they serve in the cafeteria. But uh, that's the advice I wish I had gotten. I had that. And then someone told me I shouldn't have. But Julie, over to you. you. What advice you would have received?
3: Uh, It's hard. Uh, uh, First of all, I've only been in the seat uh, for about a year and a half. So I don't feel like I have tremendous wisdom, certainly not the same level of experience that the Secretary General brings to bear here each and every day. Um, I, too, was given uh, plenty of terrific advice um, by folks who know NATO inside and out, like the two of you, but also from former PERM reps. um, A lot of stress on the importance of listening and learning before you jump in. And um, I tried to heed that advice when I came in and spent a lot of time listening to the allies. Someone said every single voice here counts and matters, and you don't just assume that it will be a certain club that you'll dictate the, the allies that you'll be interacting with the most. And I do. I interact with all of the allies each and every day in multiple different configurations depending on the issue. We all bring different strengths and insights and perspectives. And it's been amazing to watch each and every ally bring fresh ideas and fresh thinking to the table each time that we sit down at the NAC. I have found sometimes that multilateral diplomacy takes a lot of work. Um, This is a new setting for me, not to be working in a bilateral capacity, but with 30 other allies. But equally, what I found to be true, which I kind of knew in my heart when I took the job, was that when 31 countries come together and make a decision, it carries enormous weight. And so the work that goes into consensus, while it sometimes takes longer than you ever would imagine, at the end of the day, the influence that comes with that decision, the power, the heft of a decision taken at 31, as we would say, really matters. And it is observed and taken seriously whether it's a statement or a new policy or a press conference or whatever it is we're doing, a communique, the world is watching. And so we put the time in here. We fight through some of those tough debates. We do have debates here each and every week. But I think it's it has played out in many ways, as I expected, that the time is worth Reaching consensus. I don't think we should ever question consensus here in the Alliance because of what it fundamentally means to the world and to us to have all 31 of us agree on something.
0: That's a wonderful place to end. I know that um, the transatlantic community and really everyone is extraordinarily fortunate to have you both in your current roles. So thank you for all of your leadership through um, this really. critical time. So thank you. And I guess we could end with a happy anniversary, Brussels Sprouts. Um, Thanks. Thanks to both of you for doing it. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, have a great afternoon. afternoon. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.